for the second time. And with friends, welcome back to One Hit Wonders of the World, episode two. I think we're actually back. We're, we're back for the first time. We're back for the, back for the first time. <laughs> the, first, the first one wasn't us coming back, you know? We're back for the <laughs> third episode. We're coming back from the void. We're coming back from the infinite womb. The boys are back in town. Sure. Of course. We're back in town. Hello. Welcome back to One Hit Wonders of the World. I am Maxton Stenstrom, a.k.a. Infinite Freefall, here with my co-host. Trevor Ickrath. Yes. That's me. That's you. And we have some special guests with us today. Yeah. Uh, joining us is my good friend Austin Butler, a.k.a. Nori. Um, yeah. What's up? Trevor and I are recording at different places for this episode. Magic. I'm actually at home in Charleston, South Carolina, where it has snowed and inclement weather has led me to uh, a canceled flight where I should be going back to Los Angeles right now, but I will not be back until Monday. And I am back in Los Angeles, and none of that stuff has happened to me. Yeah, how is it out there? It's still really warm and shit, right? Yeah, it's very mild, yeah. Super nice. I can't wait. It's still shorts weather, right? Pretty much. That's why I stay there. I'm going to scoot back a little bit. Oh, God. This this episode features the squeaky chair. Squeaky chair, seriously. They're making periodic appearances. Most conversational chair ever designed by IKEA. <laughs> oh yeah, of course it's an IKEA chair. Innovative, right? <laughs> it talks back. Today, we're here with our friends to talk about Blind Melon and their 1993 hit No Rain, and the story of this band of misfits who became cultural darlings. Yeah, I gotta say, Max, and I was a little surprised that, like, you know, our first episode about Norman Greenbaum was kind of, I don't want to say whimsical, but, like, it definitely was a lighthearted tale about this guy who discovered a special kind of guitar reverb, mm-hmm. ended up just wanting to kind of hang out with goats, but you've chosen quite a little bit of a dark saga for our second episode. Oh, yes. This goes to some seriously strange places. And this band has a huge history that I don't think a lot of people know about. I had to actually do some digging to find most of the things that I found for today's episode. Yeah, I had no idea that there was such a history to Blind Melon. Me either, until I did this Googling. Really excited to share my findings with you guys. But before we even do that, First, I want to talk about everyone's opinions and experiences with this song. Yeah, I really like this song. Like, listening to it for this show, kind of, I, I realized, like, just what a good, solid, like, alternative rock song that I think it is. And I think it's, like, a great character study, too, mm-hmm. in the same vein as songs like uh, Flagpole Sitter by Harvey Danger. Of course. Or uh, Teenage Dirtbag by Weedis. And even, like, I think you could put Loser by Beck in that same group. Totally. That would come out, like a year later and almost be kind of like a deconstruction or a parody of exactly what this song is, I think. Like a romanticized depiction of a certain kind of like archetypical Generation Xer. Definitely has that Generation X vibe to it. That sort of hippies 60s nostalgia. I love this song. I remember the song being constantly played on local Charleston alt-rock radio station 105.5 The Bridge. Uh, shout out to the bridge. I don't even think they're still around anymore. They were the best, and um, they played. I, I think all of those other songs that you mentioned, Teenage Dirtbag, was like regular rotation on this radio station here in Charleston, and uh, exposed me to some serious classics such as this. And I think it's maybe one of the catchiest one-hit wonders because both the guitar line and vocal line are iconic and instantly recognizable. They're infectious, yeah. Yeah, if you even try to hum them, you know what it is. That riff is so catchy. It's magical. It's wonderful. It's really a perfect storm, honestly. I see what you did there. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't mean to do that. 
Austin, what do you think about No Rain by Blind Melon? I heard it in a lot of movies. Do you remember any of the movies you heard it in? No, but give me a second and I'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I can't think of any films or anything that I've heard this song in off the top of my head, but it feels like definitive theme song for like a lead in a quirky teen comedy or young adult novel. Yeah. Like this is what plays in my in the background when we're being introduced to the main character of like a John Green novel, meeting their parents and friends and seeing where they've grown right. up and what makes them interesting. It wouldn't have been out of place in the first act of like Lady Bird or something like that. Although I don't know how era appropriate it would have been in that one. It's very Heartland, very Heartland rock. Heartland's a good word for it, yeah. Makes me feel like I'm in like a flyover state or something. Yeah, which is which is great because that's where it was recorded and we'll get into that now. And I think that's a perfect transition to get us into the backstory of Blind Melon, the early embryonic years of this band. Um, you, you guys mind if I talk about this a bit? So, Blind Melon formed in Los Angeles in March 1990 after West Point, Mississippi transplants Roger Stevens and Brad Smith, respectively the guitarist and the bassist, met their vocalist Shannon Hoon, a native of Lafayette, Indiana. The guitarist Christopher Thorne, originally from Pennsylvania, was added shortly thereafter, and the four eventually convinced a drummer, Glenn Graham, to relocate from Mississippi to complete the group after failing to find their own drummer in Los Angeles. Their moniker derived from a nickname Smith had observed among Mississippi hippies, a name with a precedent in the 1920s <coughs> blues artist Blind Lemon Jefferson and the Cheech and Chong character Blind Melon. Mm. And I think the Cheech and Chong uh, reference is the one that most people probably associate it with. Yeah. So I want to talk about Shannon Hoon a bit because this guy is wild. This guy is a character. Guy, he is literally a cartoon character. Sounds like um, that type of person. He was born in the 60s in Lafayette. As a kid, he was hyperactive, but his parents did not want to, quote, put him on drugs. So they enrolled him in karate classes at the age of six. By the time he was nine years old, he was a black belt in high school. Shannon Hoon developed a reputation for misbehavior, and his mom said at one point that she was carrying four bail bonds for him. Oh, shit. In 1990, at the age of 23, Hoon met Stevens in Los Angeles after taking a bus from Lafayette to California. The classic Tenacious D approach. Yeah. Trigger warning for vegans. Yeah. Stevens and bassist Smith have moved to L.A. in 1989 <laughs> from West Point, where they worked on the kill floor of a slaughterhouse, beheading, deshouldering, and gutting as many as 6,000 hogs a day. 6,000 hogs a day. This band is not Morrissey approved. This band is not Morrissey approved. Although this song, kind of Smithsy in a certain True. way. This is very Smithsy, I would have to say. Smithsy. Smithsian. That kind of jangle, the Smith's jangle, if you will. And that kind of like romanticized, sad, boring life kind of thing going yeah, on. Yeah, you know? that's definitely the vibe. Stevens met Hoon through a mutual friend, and then Hoon played a couple of tunes for him, and Stevens was impressed with his voice. And then on the spot, they decided they would be in a band together. It's beautiful when you know that there's a connection with someone just like that. Like, you just go, oh, you, you and me were made to do something together. Let's do it. And you, just, and you get out there. Whether that something be forming a band or slaughtering hogs. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, they were like professional hog slaughters. <laughs> championship gold medalist. That's a cooler name than Blind Melon, right? Professional Hog Slaughterers? That sounds like a German band that just, like, sings really hardcore lyrics about Satan. <laughs> the band debuted with a four-song demo, The Good Foot Workshop, in 1991. And uh, Capitol Records A&R, Tim Devine signed Blind Melon later that year and oversaw sessions with famed producer David Briggs for an unreleased EP to be titled 
the Sippin' Time Sessions. The recordings were abandoned, though, due to the band's dissatisfaction with the production quality, which they felt resulted in quote-unquote slick and doctored results. Boone's friendship and association with Guns N' Roses frontman Axl Rose accrued additional industry attention for the group. Okay, okay, real quick. This was the part of your notes that kind of grabbed me, but I wasn't able to sink deeper into. Where did this guy meet Axl yeah, Rose? Like, what's the friendship here? Like, what's going on? Are you just Googling right now? Axl Rose. I don't know how much of that there is on, online. While we're Googling, I'd like to say that this song was used a lot in the OC, and that is where I heard it. Okay, so quick Google result. Mm-hmm. Uh, informs me that um, Hoon's sister Anna went to high school and was friends with Axl Rose. Oh, and wow. they they kind of okay. met through her. Wow, it's all about who you know, man. The music industry, the music business, all about who you know in the '90s, in the '70s, today. Anna. Norman Greenbaum didn't know anyone, which is why he didn't do anything. He just knew a bunch of goats. You got to know. You got to know. <laughs> More than goats. <laughs> I believe I read a story, or maybe maybe even saw a YouTube video um, that exists of Shannon Hoon coming out on stage during a Guns N' Roses concert, completely naked, delivering a pizza to the band. I believe that that exists online. Really? Yeah. So Hoon's friendship and association with Axel accrued additional d- industry attention for the group as he provided backing vocals on several Guns N' Roses tracks on Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, including wow. the single Don't Cry. Wow. Interesting. Then later that year, they embarked on a tour supporting Soundgarden mm. in late 91. Not a bad gig. Yeah, not a bad not gig at all. at all. These guys got some incredible opening gigs that we're going to go they into. They got a decent opening sound. Yeah. yeah I'd love to opener. hear them first. <laughs> <laughs> totally. How many people do you think went to those uh, went to those Soundgarden shows just for Blind Melon and then cleared out once the Black Hole Suns took to the stage? <laughs> they, no, they cleared they cleared out after they heard No Rain. They came to hear No Rain, and then once no, no Rain was done, they're out. Well, I, I assume they would save that for last. Anyway, so now it's late 1991, and Blind Melon just decided they needed to leave Los Angeles to record their debut album because they felt the city did not reflect their music style. True or false? If the debut album is any indication, completely true. This does not sound like LA music. It sounds like I'm walking along a train track in like Iowa or something. Right, flyover states. Exactly. A Capitol Records music manager suggested that they go to North Carolina. Chapel Hill was suggested as attracted to the band because it had a quote-unquote good music scene, but they couldn't find an affordable house big enough for them and their equipment. Oh, wow. So they eventually rented a house in Durham, and they call it the Sleepy House. Oh, that's um, cute. Right? I love when bands nickname places yeah. that they record their albums. Me too. It's always interesting, like, finding out where albums were recorded. Like, my favorite instance is Red Hot Chili Peppers. They recorded Blood, Sugar, Sex, Magic in, like, this big... The mansion. It was like a castle, I think it was. And, was like, it? one... And they, they all thought it was haunted. Flea was like, I'm not going to stay here, so I'm going to ride my bike to the studio every day. And John Frusciante was like, no, the, the ghosts are cool. Mm-hmm. They're... They're fine with us being here. They're going to let us coexist in yes, peace. Yes, I remember hearing about this. This is Rick Rubin's mansion in Laurel oh Canyon. God. That's Rick Rubin. I would Rubin. love to make an album in Rick Rubin's mansion. Tell me about it, man. You know who else is recorded there? LCD Sunstone recorded This Is Happening there, oh. I believe. That same mansion. I think because there's video footage of them doing it online. It's the same mansion. And so Sleepy House is really kind of where they felt like they came into their own as a band, right? They rehearsed in it a lot, and they recorded it, and... and 
in that house they became a, a better band and developed their sound. But despite this, they actually recorded most of the album with a producer, Rick Parashar, who produced Pearl Jam's 10 uh, mm. at the London Bridge studio in Seattle, Washington. Which totally checks out as like, you know, these guys as a Seattle band. No Rain, though, the name of that song, kind of ironic then, because it does rain off in Seattle, doesn't it? Yeah, it I was going to say it's definitely some, like, rainy yeah. music. Yeah. But they recorded in the spring of 1992, and I've been to Seattle once in, in the spring, and it is beautiful in the spring, and it does not rain that much. I might move there. That would be cool. That'd be a cool rain. locale. You like the rain? Yeah, I probably didn't make my best work there. You like the cold? Yeah. I don't know. It's just the rain and plus the cold. Like, give me one or give me the other. Well, it's not cold all the time. Isn't oh, that where God. Fraser Crane lives? Yeah, he lives in Seattle. I live anywhere Fraser Crane lives. Toss salad and scrambled eggs. Exactly. So let's get in a little bit about the album. First off, did you listen to it? The whole thing? Well, I listened to most of you it. You listened to most of it? I didn't listen to most of it. I thought it was pretty bad. Oh, is it? <laughs> I thought it was pretty bad. How bad? Give me the early 2000s snarky pitchfork review of it. I'm not going to do that, but I'll <laughs> say that like uh, when we listened to Norman Greenbaum, I decided to take like a look at his like greatest hits. Mm-hmm. And like the first song in that one, I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. I could maybe check. I could, I could maybe listen to this kind of casually. Mm-hmm. But like I did not have that reaction to anything on the Blind Melon album. Interesting. It was just kind of obnoxious and a mess. Interesting. But no rain's still good. No rain holds up. Okay, no, no rain's no rain's a keeper. All right, no rain, but the rest of it definitely not. Really, yeah, I okay. Wouldn't, wouldn't really find this one coming to rotation. Can you rate it on a chance of rain scale from zero percent to one hundred percent? Well, considering there's a song called "No Rain" on it, I would call it a zero percent chance of rain. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. It's good cover music, man. You like you could you could eat somewhere at a restaurant, some pasta, hear it in the background. Maybe being played by somebody who doesn't have real hair on. (laughs) You know? Totally. It's great cover band music. So, the album, they used a lot of outdated amplifiers and other antiquated studio technology. Modern effects were not used in its production because they wanted to create an intimate sounding record. It's amazing how much detail these Wikipedia pages are written with about this album, <laughs> which by by your standards, Trevor, and probably many other people's, is kind of not that great. Except the person who wrote this. It's probably one of the band members. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it is. On their debut album, Roger Stevens' guitar playing was predominantly in the right channel, while Chris Thorns is in the left. Cool detail. That's cute. Right, that is cute. There's lots of cute things about this band. Yeah. This is a cute-ass fucking band. Sleepy house. Right. I know who I'm listening to, you know? (laughs) You're listening to Blind Melon, Once and Never Again. So, about the song. This song is an L.A. song. Blind Melon bass player Brad Smith wrote the song before he formed the band. This is right after he moved from Mississippi to L.A., where he fell into a funk. He says... The song is about not being able to get out of bed and to find excuses to face the day when really you have, in a way, nothing. At the time, Brad was dating a girl who was going through depression. She would sleep through sunny days and complain when it didn't rain. And for a while, he told himself that he was writing the song from her perspective. He later realized that he was also writing it about himself. And about, you know, his entire generation, it feels like, sometimes. I think it's really interesting that the bassist wrote the song... Yeah. The lead singer didn't write the song. That's crazy to me. Right. It, it's specifically intimate sounding song coming from like some dude who like we have just found out is kind of like a weird, peculiar guy. Mm-hmm. 
but it turns out he's just singing something somebody else wrote. It's kind of like almost anticlimactic, you know? Yeah. Like he's not some kind of weird genius or anything for like tapping into these feelings and emotions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But maybe the bass player is, who knows? It's interesting how they all kind of agreed that it was elevated whenever the lead singer did it himself. Like it wasn't, like it was never Brad's song. It was like, no, this is not my song to sing. This is your song to sing. It's everybody's song. Shannon just kind of, you know. You know? Yeah. They focus it through him. He was the, he He's was a good the medium. medium for it. Yeah, he was the medium. He's a good medium for it. The first performances of the song were on Venice Beach where Brad Smith would do his busking. That's where the lyric and the song were inspired from, is just having to write songs, he said. And then being in the state of mind I was in and having to come up with material to go play down on the beach for change. I played that song on the beach for change for over a year before Shannon Hoon actually joined the band and really made that song a hit. Let's talk about what happened when the song became a hit, and let's discuss what went right. I think that this song was kind of buoyed and carried by its iconic music video. Also, the timing of it coinciding with the peak of MTV in the early 90s. I think the combination of those two things really propelled this song to a state of legend status almost. Right, the music video featuring the famous B-Girl. Yeah, do you want to read about this? Sure, this B-Girl was this young actress named Heather Deloach. This little girl is a B-Girl who's like a young tap dancer wearing a bee costume and large, like, nerdy, dorky glasses. And the video is basically just her performing... This little kind of tap dance, it's kind of cute, kind of funny, in front of an audience that we don't really see. But when she stops, we hear people start to laugh at her, kind of sound, kind of in a sinister way. You know, it's really echoed very up sinister. a lot. Yeah, it's very, very, very disconcerting. They laugh at her, and she's like, you know, fuck this. I'm going to go run around, show this dance to as many people as I can. And they all kind of have the same reaction. They all kind of don't know what to make of her. Right. Until... We reach the bridge of the song and she finds a gated community that enters into this idyllic grassy patch of land where a lot of other people in bee costumes are kind of cavorting and they accept her and lift her up. Having a great time. She becomes their leader. It was a big video. A lot of people saw this. I wanted to explain real quick how the B-Girl came to life. The B-Girl on the cover of the record is actually a family photo of the younger sister of the drummer of the band. Oh, I thought it was her. No. I thought it was interesting. That's a family picture. The name of the girl on the cover is Georgia Graham. They auditioned people and looked for someone who looked like her, and they found Heather Deloach. Okay. And she brought that picture to life. I would say they have a lot to thank Heather for. There's a great passage about Brad Smith's lyrics that feels very masturbatory that I think is really funny, and I'm going to read it. A hallmark of Brad Smith's lyrics is a feeling of melancholy, which doesn't always match the music he puts to the song. He describes the music to the song as a, quote, jaunty little happy halfway island beat, which sounds like don't worry, be happy, which it kind of does. This is a great quote from emo Brad Smith right now. He explained, a lot of my songs come from a darker place. And if you just met me walking down the road, you'd say, oh, you're such a happy guy, Brad. Why the dark songs? I'm like, I don't know. Wake me up. Wake me up inside. (laughs) (laughs) That is so stupid. It's clearly dealing with a lot of inner conflict. That was one of the worst quotes in history. I'm going to keep reading, but that pause there is necessary. For me, it just has more meaning if you can get inside someone's soul and identify with them on a heavier level and try to connect with them on that level. Because when you're sad and you're down, you're the most vulnerable and you feel the most alone. All right. 
emo Brad Smith. I get it though, because I feel like this song is like subtly very relatable. Maybe that's why it became such a hit and why it's still such a hit today. But it feels like that kind of gets lost in the fact that it has blown up. You know what I mean? Nobody thinks like, oh yeah, man, I really relate to No Rain by Blind Melon. (laughs) But like when I hear Shannon going like, I don't understand why I sleep all day. I'm like, man, me fucking neither. I feel you, man. I feel that too. It, it connects to something kind of innerly human almost, you know? That's what these one-hit wonders do. You know, they tap into something yeah. we can't really understand. But only once. And you know why? Because something went wrong. And now it's time to talk about what went wrong. Da, 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 da. Last time it was awesome. I thought that was pretty good already. <laughs> Thank you. This is where we start to get into Shannon Hoon's stage antics, which are amazing. The downward spiral of Shannon Hoon's. A good part of the movie. So the group began to tour extensively in support of their self-titled debut, performing dates in Europe and Mexico, and supporting such acts as Neil Young and Lenny Kravitz. Uh, late in 1993. Really good gigs they're getting. But listen. While opening for Lenny Kravitz at the Pacific Coliseum in Vancouver, Hoon was charged with stripping and urinating on stage and into the audience. Not good. Shannon, my guy. This man peed on the front row of the Lenny Kravitz show. Not the move. Uh, (laughs) Not the move. These people are just out here to see American Woman. Come on. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm like. I want to fly away. How many, like, I want to fly away, not get peed on by the dude who sings No Rain. How many super pissed off Lenny Kravitz fans do you think were in the front row at the rail just waiting for their idol Lenny Kravitz I mean, to come out? If you haven't backed up by the time he's gotten naked, I don't know. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I don't know how many pissed off Lenny Kravitz fans are there, but I could probably tell you how many pissed on Lenny Kravitz fans <laughs> are there. Do Lenny Kravitz fans even get pissed off? They like flex in their leather titans. Right. There may be no rain, but somebody's getting showered in something. <laughs> yeah, bad move, Shannon. What are you doing? Come on. Awful move. That's not cool. Not cool. One journalist recalls, when I finally got seated partway through opener Blind Melon set and took my first glance at the stage, I thought singer Shannon Hoon was getting into the spirit of things by wearing some sort of flesh-colored outfit. To my dismay, the long-haired dude was stark naked. I figured maybe he tried mooning the crowd, lost his pants in the process, and was writing the song out until one of his pants roadies found him another pair. But no. This is a quote. I'm sorry, but I'm just having so much fun, said Hoon, who proceeded to simulate sex with a guy dressed up in a bee costume. By the time the still-naked Hoon led the band into their big hit, No Rain, I was kind of tired of watching his pasty butt bounce around on the stage. But I must admit, he caught my attention again when he started peeing all over the stage and then aimed his weenie at the poor folks in the front row. Considering the duration of Hoon's urination, it looked like a good pee, but a chorus of booze went up anyway. And the Vancouver police didn't think it was a good pee either because they arrested Hoon after the show on an indecency charge. I would hope that even if they did think it was a good pee, they would still arrest them because that is Me kind too. of their job. I mean, the fact that he like was up there naked long enough to pee. Yeah. 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 No right. one stop that. They, they, it's Canada. They're usually chill okay. about these things. It's Vancouver. Yeah, They're mean, like, this is I've an alternative lifestyle. This is art. Let, let him do his thing. He's getting wild the Lenny Kravitz show. He starts fucking a bee. That's like... You know, don't fuck bees. It's like unnecessary. Oh my gosh. So, as a part of a plea deal... A pee deal? (laughs) Basically. No, a plea deal. A bee deal? (laughs) A pee deal. 
stemming from the P incident. Two months later, in December 1993, Blind Melon played two sold-out benefit shows with proceeds going to the Vancouver Food Bank as part of the community service. Now that sounds like asking for more trouble, doesn't it? Like, this guy gets up on stage to do a show, ends up peeing on a bunch of people. How are we going to punish him? Just give him two more shows to do. I'm sure it'll be better this time. Sounds like a management move. You know what happened? I read at one of these concerts, the first one he came on stage, and the first thing he said is, Hi, Vancouver, long time no pee. <laughs> <laughs> this man was wild. I bet everyone was pissed. Let's rewind back to 1994, where the band gave a memorable performance at that year's Woodstock. Hoon took the stage by wearing his girlfriend's white dress for a 13-song set. Partway through, that the singer, sick. said to be high on acid, threw the band's conga drums into the crowd. Well, that's just punk rock. Did you watch that performance? It's on YouTube. Oh, it's on YouTube? It is. I, I watched it. He definitely looks like he's on acid. You can sing on acid? I mean, Hendrix did it. Wow. Respect to people who can do hard drugs and then go and perform music. I'm sure it wasn't his first rodeo or anything like that, you know? After they threw their conga drums into the crowd, they opened for the Rolling Stones' Voodoo Lounge Tour in 1994. How are they still getting shows? Were the Rolling Stones? And guess what? They didn't even play No Rain. Oh my gosh. Because as their manager, Paul Cummings, explained, they had become one of those bands that hate their hit. You know what you do if you become one of those bands that hate your hit? Write another hit. So amidst rising success, the band began to experience personal and legal problems related to drug and alcohol abuse, leading to multiple stints in rehab for Shannon Hoon. He was also charged with disturbing the peace and assaulting a security guard and a police officer after Blind Melon lost the award for Best New Artist to the Stone Temple Pilots of the American Music Awards in 1994. I'd be mad too if I lost an award to the Stone Temple Pilots. He was also charged with being drunk and disorderly in New Orleans while the band was recording their second album. Wait, man. Isn't everyone drunk and disorderly in New Orleans? <laughs> <laughs> right. It's amazing that he got arrested yeah. for doing the thing that everyone there does. You have to push the barrier. Classic Shannon. Which brings us to our next point. They relocated from North Carolina in the Sleepy House to New Orleans in 1994 to start their second album, Soup. With producer Andy Wallace. What a good name. I like that. How do you feel about soup, Trevor? Reminds me of Cam. Reminds me of Cam, too. It's all yep. I can think of whenever anyone says soup. Producer Andy Wallace worked on this album that was released in 1995. It featured predominantly shorter songs with a less conventional alternative rock approach. They included New Orleans-style jazz and a quote-unquote hodgepodge of instrumentation throughout. Despite the debut of the lead single, Galaxy, at number 25 on the Billboard charts, Soup ultimately failed to meet sales expectations. Of course, because you're pissing on people. Right, man. Your antics are getting to your fans. Galaxy also just wasn't that good. Did you yeah. listen to it? Yeah. Did you listen to it now? Yeah, you want to listen to it? Let's, 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 it? Yeah, play a little bit of Galaxy. Now that I know the history, I want to give them like an analysis. Let's listen to Galaxy real quick. Here we go. Yeah, this is... You had me for a second, but then he started doing the... Yeah, no. You got to the verse and then the chorus started singing. There's cool elements to the song, but I don't think it's a good song. Yeah, I mean, I'm not here for the song anymore, so... 
the video is cool, but like the song itself doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah, like can you imagine listening to it like on the radio? No, not at all. It goes too many places. They're trying to do too many moods with it. Overall, that song is weird. Against the advice of Shannon's drug counselor, they went on tour in support of Sue. They initially employed a counselor to assist Hoon's rehab, but this attendant was soon dismissed. The night before October 20th, Blind Melon played in Houston, and according to Heath, they played poorly, and Shannon Hoon was distraught over the general course of his career. Soup was not receiving much airplay, and reviewers were panning their live performance because she's preying on people, although the band had been consistently filling stadiums while on tour. Which is, baffles me. How does that happen? Right. People don't know to skip Blind Melon because they might get peed on. People are going to a stadium show to see no rain? Maybe yeah. people want to go see Maybe someone get see. peed on. Maybe. <laughs> like, like, oh, if I go this time, he might pee on someone. I might get to see it. So, like, everyone goes, but nobody wants to be in the front row. They get, like, ponchos. <laughs> they sell outside the venue, right? Yeah, yeah there's a sign that's like, you will get wet. <laughs> After several weeks on the road, Hoon was found dead on the band's tour bus of a heart attack caused by a cocaine overdose. Of course. On October 21st, 1995. The end of Shannon Hoon. Sad. Hoon was snorting large amounts of cocaine while on tour in Houston, fell asleep on a bunk in the tour bus, and died of an overdose by the time the band had reached their destination. R.I.P. Shannon Hoon. R.I.P. Shannon Hoon. I don't know if I can say R.I.P. No. He's a real highway to hell kind of guy. I think he, he'd probably go, like, fuck up whatever is in the afterlife, too. He never did anything really bad. It's not like he hurt anybody. He just peed on somebody once. <laughs> the surviving four members opted to continue their collaboration and recruit a new vocalist, although it would ultimately take them over a decade to do so. In the meantime, they started releasing lots of memorials to their fallen friends, such as Nika, an album of outtakes and demos named for Hoon's daughter, who was only 13 weeks old when her father died. Nico contains unreleased songs from the soup recording sessions, as well as songs recorded with only partial instrumentation. The closing track, Letters from a Porcupine, was recorded as a telephone message left by Hoon on Thorne's answering machine. The album also includes covers of Steppenwolf and John Lennon songs. And the profits go to a program that helps musicians deal with drug and alcohol addiction. Oh, well, it is R.I.P. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's R.I.P. because members of Blind Melon were like, man, R.I.P. We're going to make things right for his family and his daughter. Yeah, anything that supports the kids, I'm for. So they, the band intended to reform with a new singer, and they received over 2,000 demo tapes from musicians hoping to join. But during this period, the relationships between the band members disintegrated as they attempted to recruit a new frontman. And after failing to find a replacement for Hoon, they disbanded in March 1999, and the various members went on to their other projects, including Thorne and Smith's activity in Unified Theory, a group they had founded the previous year. They reformed in 2006 and 2010 with their new vocalist, Travis Warren, finally releasing a highly anticipated fourth album, For My Friends. They continued to be sporadically active, playing small festivals in New Mexico and Maryland. And to cap 2015, the band played back-to-back -back shows on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day at the Lafayette Theater in Lafayette, Indiana, Shannon Hoon's hometown, with his mother present. And his daughter, Nico, who their album was named after, took the stage to sing their song, Change. Nice little ending there, yeah. Nice little ending, and now it's time for the post-scripts. Oh, goodness. From 2009 to 2012, former guitarist Christopher Thorne joined a new band called AWOL Nation. Way to ruin the ending. <laughs> <laughs> 
This is the like American graffiti part of the show where you know it's like during the credits, the text pops up to show you what like what happened to all the characters. Oh my god. <laughs> right, and the B girl, uh, she parlayed her role in the music video into a credible acting career, appearing in the movie Balls of Fury, I which remember. I don't know if you guys remember it, but uh Hold on, she was in a little princess. Yep, she was in the remake of the Shirley Temple film, A Little Princess, and the TV shows ER and Reno 911. And then she got married in 2017. Hey, congratulations on getting married. Who did she play in A Little Princess? She played Herman Okay. Hart, a shy, insecure girl, okay. often bullied. Oh, she played her? Oh. Yeah. That sounds like the kind of role a B-girl would get you. So, Maxton, when we did Norman, I looked up a couple of covers of Spirit in the Sky to kind of entertain you with, but I couldn't really find anything for No Rain. But we do have a kind of cover to talk about, right? Insane by Mandy Giroux. Oh, yeah. It's a pop song from 2016 that is basically just No Rain, but with the lyrics changed around a little, right? And different instrumentation, of course. Very different, like, EDM pop instrumentation. And, um, and she just changed, like, one word in the first line of the song. Honestly, if we're gonna get subjective here, really just kind of makes it lose its depth and emotion kind of instantly. Huh? Yeah, it's a really shitty song. I don't like it. I think it's bad. And I don't understand the point of making it. Yeah, let's listen to Insane. Did you listen to it? I remember it coming out. What? Yeah. I've never heard of this. I heard it like on the radio or something. What? Yeah. It's not on Spotify. They took it off. Weird. I guess it's lost to the ages. I guess it means that Blind Melon won this lawsuit. Her song has similar but different lyrics. For example, all I can say is that my life's not really plain. I like dancing in puddles that gather rain. In places where Shannon Hoon sang no rain, Gyro substituted insane. That sounds awful. It's not very good. That sounds like bottom of the barrel pop music. Yeah, it's oof. This prompted Blind Melon to file a lawsuit using the same lawyer who won quote unquote big bucks for Marvin Gaye's estate in the Blurred Lines case. Apparently it was quite the legal battle. Like I Googled it, there's this one headline that's like, Mandy Giroux countersues Blind Melon, an insane copyright case. And insane it was. Yeah. Had Gyro simply covered the song, it wouldn't have been an issue, but Blind Melon claimed that she created a quote-unquote derivative work that requires licensing. The suit is unusual in that the plaintiff is trying to prove the defendant didn't make the song similar enough. Uh. As judging from us trying to find it online in early 2018, seems like Blind Melon won. Eradicated by the ghost of Shannon Hoon. And the pockets of the copyright holders, at least. That's the last postscript, and that's going to take us to the outro, where every episode, Trevor and I are going to create attributes for every song we listen to and rate the attributes on any scale that we want. I'm going to use the scale that I made for this episode, the Chance of Rain scale, 0% to 100%. I also used that, because you told me about it. I gave the Dexter's Bouncy Guitar a 95% chance of rain. Uh, I gave the subtle, laid-back, uh, don't-worry-be-happy shaker that carries the song an 85%. Uh, I give the actual drumming effort 40%, and uh, how plain my life is, is a 100%.
chance of playing. Something I wanted to say about the drumming, because I think this is really cool. The drums come in exactly halfway through the song. Oh, what? I didn't know that. Exactly halfway. Yep. In that case, I'm bumping the chance of rain for actual drumming effort to 50. Yeah. Let's hear your attributes. I gave uh, the song's precipitous guitar tone, which, you know, just really kind of sounds like, it's called No Rain, but it sounds like it's about to rain, you know what I mean? Like, it sounds like it's fallen from a great height. Uh-huh. An 80%. 80% chance of rain? I gave its resigned sense of melancholy in 90%. Love that. The concept of romanticizing boredom, an 85%. Sure. And reading a book to stay awake, a 40%, because that doesn't usually work for me. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't work for me either. Why is it fun to consume media right before you go to sleep? You watch TV and you go to sleep. You fall asleep during the movie. I just didn't want to feel alone. That's the best answer, yeah. I completely agree, and I think that most people would have to agree. I think the ghost of Shannon Hoon would absolutely have to agree. And we hope you agree, but if you don't agree, email us at onehitwondercast at gmail.com, all spelled out. Thanks for listening to episode two of One Hit Wonders of the World, featuring our friend Austin, a.k.a. Nori. You can find us on Twitter, at onehitwondercast, with a numeral one out front. I would like you to send your impassioned emails or audio recordings to onehitwondercast at gmail.com, all spelled out. Uh, for a chance to be featured on the show alongside some other opinions, alongside our opinions. We want to hear from you. We want to know what you think. Trevor, do you want to tell us about what we're going to do on the next episode? In our next episode, we'll be talking about Ring My Bell. I love that song. Yeah. I need an award from the 70s. From the 70s. It's from the 70s? Jeez. This is a number one hit from 1979. Huh. You guys, thank you so much for listening to another episode of One Hit Wonders of the World. We hope you come back for the next one. If you have any opinions on Ring My Bell, send it to our email. Send it to our Twitter. Until then, I've been Trevor Ickraff. I've been Max and Stenstrom. Until next week. Stay wonderful.